until we landed in Bogota and we were like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So we traveled for a month and then I came back again in 2017, just for a few months after I finished uni in the UK. And I had it in my head that it was just going to be three months, practice my Spanish, do some volunteering, and then go back to the UK, move to London, like all my friends were doing, get a quote unquote real job. And mm -hmm. yes, it quickly became evident that that wasn't going to be the case. So I came back indefinitely in 2018. I worked for a few years at a PR company that was based here and quit that a few years ago to focus the majority of my time on psychedelic sacred medicines and writing journalism. Amazing. As someone who's never been to Colombia or South America in general, like what about it drew you so much, especially when you got to Bogota? What was the call, I guess, that kept you there? I mean, honestly, right now, the things that are keeping me here are very much different to what drew me here in the first place. But I think something that was constant the whole way through was just the beauty of this country. There's so many different ecosystems. Totally. The nature is unbelievable. I mean, Bogota is just like a bit of a sensory overload after coming from Cuba. But when I came to Medellin, I absolutely loved the energy of the city, the people. People from Medellin, Antioquia are called Paisas. And Paisas are super friendly, really, really kind, welcoming people. And and then the coast is really beautiful as well. And, you know, I've since had the opportunity to visit places in the Amazon and other areas of the country, like a lot of hiking, a lot of mountain adventures. So I'm mainly the people and the nature to begin with. And then more recently, the medicines. I don't know where else in the world you could have more access to sacred plant medicines, you know, both medicines that come from Colombia and then medicines that come from elsewhere as well. But like a lot of people, especially where I live in Santa Elena, work with them and work with different traditions. They certainly seem to concentrate here. I mean, this is one of the most biodiverse places on earth in terms of plants. And even butterflies, I think, are the most biodiverse. Yeah. And like what other countries can you go to the beach, the high Andean mountains, lakes, Amazon rainforest? For such a small country, it's actually pretty amazing to me as well. Yeah, exactly. There are mountains that go up to like 6,000 meters. So it's like glaciers, but then also tropical rainforests as well. It's amazing. I mean, Bogota itself is like 2,500 meters or something. Every time I get here after like going back home to Canada to visit or something, I, there's like a week where, you know, I go up like three flights of stairs and I'm out of breath. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the Tripsitter podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a trip sitter watch over your experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Welcome to the Trip Sitter Podcast. I am Rowan Zioli. I am a contributor for Trip Sitter. I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor in chief of Trip Sitter. Yeah, thank you. I'm Mags. I'm a writer in the psychedelic space and also a integration circle facilitator. Amazing. Thank you so much for being with us, Mags. Thank you for having me. How did you get involved in covering medicine? And like, what was your relationship to it before you started covering it? And how did you make that transition? Yeah, so I think like the vast majority of people who are now working in psychedelics, my first experiences were recreational. I did mushrooms with friends at uni. <laughs> it's kind of like that classic story of having no idea what you were getting yourself into. And then, mm -hmm. oh my God, what have I done? But it was really when I came to Colombia and interestingly, I had like a lot of friends from work who were experimenting a lot and did a few different journeys with LSD out in nature, which is amazing. And then tried DMT like once with another friend. It wasn't really until I got invited to a yahe or ayahuasca ceremony with one of my close friends who I was, you know, doing a lot of this different experimentation with. 
she invited me to a ceremony and like honestly I didn't really have a super clear intention I just felt like a very very strong pull and I think I've always liked altering my consciousness from <laughs> when I was younger so just like anything of this nature I was super attracted to so I went with her to the ceremony and I just felt like those first few ceremonies that I did were really like dipping my toes in but I knew that there was something here to like really dive into so I started attending more ceremonies and then also learning a lot about the traditions as well speaking to the shamans to the taitas who were really really amazing to learn from and but just purely because of the proximity to the tradition like where I live it was so easy for me to um, learn all of these different things that you might not necessarily learn if you were living in Europe or North America for example so I started to get really interested in the traditions and then because I was working at a writer at a PR company and the company had its own podcast I had the opportunity to write a little bit under my own name and then also host a few episodes of this podcast so I decided to host a series on psychedelics basically and then as soon as I started really getting into it through that avenue I really just wanted to keep exploring so then I wrote a few articles for a platform called Psychable which is like an online directory of practitioners wrote an article for Chakruna as well and I just really loved doing the interviews like interviewing the the wisdom keepers and the different practitioners and facilitators and learning about it that way so it's kind of been like a gradual yeah transition so kind of with that, as a journalist coming into the space, coming from the UK into Colombia, how do you make sure to be careful when you're interviewing these people, like making sure that these oral traditions maintain the respect, especially with so much like psychedelic tourism happening to these areas? What do you feel like your responsibility is and how do you make sure that that represents in your work? Oh, that's such an interesting question, mm -hmm. Rowan. It's really about listening, you know. It takes time and effort to build relationships with these communities. A lot of wisdom keepers, they're not necessarily gonna just open up the first time that you meet them. It takes a long time, so it's really just been for me about attending ceremonies, showing them how much I respect the medicine, showing them how committed I am to this path. You know, I'm not just a random person coming in drinking ayahuasca <laughs> once and then deciding that it's my job to educate other people. <laughs> and every time I speak to them, I really try and emphasize it's super important for us to have reverence and respect for these traditions and I always try and frame questions around like what can we do to make sure that we're doing this in a respectful way that we're doing this in a responsible way just really trying to kind of demonstrate to them that that's a priority for me I think for a lot of these indigenous communities they can really see and sense like when somebody is being respectful and when someone's being responsible versus when somebody is just kind of going in and expecting it to be like a magic pill or like a drug experience that's <laughs> going to fix them without actually engaging in any form of reciprocity. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but those are just a few of the things that I try and keep in mind. Yeah, I think that reciprocity is a really important aspect, that idea that like it is a give and a take in both ways, that you're not just going to do this drug and then you're going to leave immediately. Like that relationship you build is very important. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's reciprocity with the communities and with the medicine itself, you know, like going in, into an experience, especially as you kind of drink more and more medicine. For me personally, like my intentions have kind of evolved from help me heal X, Y, Z to how can I learn more about the medicine? medicine teach me about you teach me about like how better to work with you teach me about how better to treat you and and communicate about you since that's like such a huge part of my work as well so understanding that the medicine is for many people it's it's another consciousness and it's another being that we can have a reciprocal relationship with totally what sort of medicines have you been focusing on or working with specifically so primarily it's been yehe which is the name for ayahuasca in colombia a lot of people here will use those terms interchangeably but they are different mainly in terms of the ritual the tradition the style of the ceremony. The majority of yahe here in Colombia is used using the yahe or ayahuasca vine and then the chagropanga leaf. 
whereas in Peru, it's mostly the chacruna leaf. As the source of the DMT, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then also mambe nambil. Mambe is a powder made out of coca leaf and the ashes of the yarumo tree from the Amazon. And then ambil is a medicine that goes together with mambe, which is like a tobacco paste made using tobacco and different vegetable salts from the jungle. And those are two very, very important Colombian medicines. As you meet medicine people in Colombia, you'll see they have their cheeks full of this green powder <laughs> and their teeth are stained all green and kind of first see it and you're like, oh my God, what have they got in their mouth? But it's because they're mambeando. That's the word for it here. Also, rape or hape, as it's known in Brazil. I have a deep relationship with that medicine and was recently initiated into serving it to other people, which was a, a real honor. And then more recently, building a relationship with Wachuma, with the facilitator that I've been working with. Could you speak to that process? Like, obviously to what you can speak to, because I know a lot of these practices are like closed. But what did that process look like of being able to now impart hape to other people and give the medicine to other people? So the thing about hape is a lot of people will just... And like I used to be in this bucket of people will just sort of serve it to others willy-nilly without really considering what it means to serve that medicine to somebody else. So I had a couple of experiences where I had given people too much and they'd end up having a really, really strong reaction. And it was just like a misjudgment on my part. So I felt that it was really important that I actually learn from somebody who has also been initiated um, how to serve the medicine. So it was basically just a lot of hape <laughs> one after the other. Like all <laughs> at one time, just like a super high dose? <laughs> no, just like multiple blows in the okay. space of maybe like 45 minutes, one hour, one after the other. The idea is that if you're going to serve medicine to somebody else, you really need to know what is the strongest possible reaction you can have to that mm, medicine. Totally. And I generally take hape quite well, like I'd never vomited from it before, but I think after like the third or fourth blow, I was, you know, nauseous. throwing up and yeah. <laughs> had to keep going though. You kept going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really strong. By the end of it, my entire body was just like vibrating with the energy <laughs> of the wow. medicine. But I feel like that it was like a start before and after. After that initiation, I felt a much deeper connection with the medicine. I felt like I was intuitively able to judge better how much to give other people and how much to serve myself as well. She also taught me like a prayer and a few different other prayers to be able to help people navigate and like call in the spirits of the medicine and stuff like that. So it's a huge privilege to be able to learn that. So what does a typical hape ceremony look like? So hape, I think it's different from other psychedelic medicines in that it can be used at different moments. It doesn't necessarily have to be an official ceremony where everybody gathers and it's like, hey, we're not going to do hape. Like you can absolutely do that. But it's mm -hmm. also something that you can use at home if you just want to feel more grounded, more centered. You know, it's obviously a medicine that has a base of tobacco, which is said to clear the thoughts and connect you to your heart because tobacco is a medicine of the heart. So Anytime that you're feeling like you need to shed a certain negative energy or if you've had like a really bad day and you just kind of want to like get rid of that energy, it's a really good medicine to use. It's also really good to use before ceremonies with other medicines, such as with Yahe, like the Taita that we work with. He always serves hape to people who want it before we drink the medicine because it's really, really powerful at quietening the mind and just helping you feel more grounded and centered. And it can do that during Yahe ceremonies as well. So for me personally, like I try to be very, very intentional. I think that's the key that underlies all of it is just using totally. it with intention not just doing it absent-mindedly like i heard you guys talking about it on the <laughs> podcast about tobacco about people are doing it at parties i was like oh my god i can see how it can get to that point though because obviously at the end of the day it's tobacco so it makes you feel good depending on how much you take but yeah just always doing it with intention creating like a little ritual around it making sure that you have time afterwards to just sort of like sit and meditate and be with it and really just using a bit of discernment over what's appropriate and what's not appropriate using it consciously basically right 
is an expander of consciousness in whatever form can totally use exactly. things like this unconsciously. How is it with the nose? I mean, I've never done hape, but that was always kind of my, I don't want to say concern, <laughs> but the burning sensation of my and nasal drip doesn't sound great to me. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like if you're going to do it for the first time, the person who should serve you should give you just a little bit. Mm. Right. They don't need to like blast you with a super high dose if you're doing it for the first time because yeah. you don't know how you'll react. They don't know how you react. But it's really a very small amount of discomfort for very beautiful rewards at the end of it. So it's something that passes very quickly. It can, especially if you're receiving it from like a shaman, like whenever the taita that we work with serves hape, we always kind of say to people, look, it's one thing. If I give it to you, it's another thing. If he gives it to you, if you consider all of the energy and mm -hmm. everything that he carries, because when someone serves hape, it's really the energy of the person who's serving is going into the person who's receiving. So it's really important to be very careful who you receive it from and not just accept it from anybody because it's a very powerful energetic exchange. But in terms of the burning sensation, yeah, I don't think it's that bad. It's something you really get used to it. After the first <laughs> few times, it's like, it's Fair okay. Enough. Yeah. And so when you say the shaman or someone else serves it to you, like, are they blowing it into your nose? Is that how that works? Mm -hmm. But you can also do it to yourself, right? With the special little applicators. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I personally prefer to receive it from someone else as long as obviously the other person like knows what they're doing <laughs> and knows how to serve it and is in integrity and, you know, is doing it from the right place. For me personally, I've experienced it as stronger when other people serve it because if you think of it like aerodynamically, the medicine, like if you have a kuripe, it kind of has to go like down and then up again. It has to kind of make a U-turn basically at some point up the pipe. Right. But if you have a tepi, which is like longer and doesn't have that same like angle, it's like a much more direct Just blow. Straight up there. Exactly. Yeah. You were speaking to this idea of this energetic exchange and how these medicines have taught you a lot about how you relate in ceremony. Have you noticed that that brings out into other aspects of your life, especially living in a different country, living in a different culture? Has the medicine that you've taken made you more able to, I guess, adapt to the cultures around you and like receive that energetic exchange in a different way? Yeah, that's so interesting because I've Personally, and I know other people have noticed this as well, I feel a lot more sensitive since drinking medicine fairly frequently. Like now, if I'm in like a certain environment where I feel like it's very hectic, there are a lot of people, maybe the energy is a little bit heavier than I'm used to, you know, like living in the mountains in my house in Santa Elena, I feel a lot more sensitive to it. So yeah, it's definitely made me be very careful about where I go, who I hang out with, the kind of things that I take part in, like just thinking about what's going to be nourishing for me and what might I want to say no to my friends now basically just understood not to invite me on nights out anymore <laughs> but yeah that's a really interesting question to think about if i've become like more receptive to other people's energies really like the more work you do on yourself and the more in touch you become with yourself the easier it is to make those judgments just like have that sort of gauge when it comes to other people as yeah, well yeah that makes a lot of sense I wanted to ask a little bit more about like, like hape is not just tobacco. What other herbs are in there? And does that change depending on the, the practitioner or the shaman? Yes. Yeah, so different tribes will have different blends. So there are, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many, but probably like thousands and thousands of different types of pape. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it's always jungle medicines. I've seen now people starting to blend them with plants that come from outside of the jungle. I mean, there are a lot of blends that will contain like the ashes of a different tree or a seed. So a few of the ones that I've used before, there's one called Samoma, which I really like, which is like a very, very old tree from the Amazon. So they say that that carries like a very ancestral energy of kind of like a grandfather energy, which is really cool. There are also blends with mint, which is really like you can imagine that out the nose as well. Like it's really, really good Ooh. for like clearing the airwaves. So it really just depends on the tribe the blend of obviously the different plants, but then also the people who've made 
the medicine, like with any medicine, that process of its power starts with planting the seeds, growing the plants, harvesting the plants, the process mm -hmm. of making it, all of the ritual and energy that goes into making the medicine, and then obviously the ingredients as well. Fascinating. I've heard they use cacao as well. Have you ever seen that? That's interesting. Yeah, I've actually never tried it with cacao. I mean, there are some really strong blends that have like different seeds that have DMT in as well. So I've heard of people having a strong dose and starting to have like a few visions. Yeah, like yopo or something or nutmeg or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, yopo would be a different snuff. I don't know if that's blended with tobacco, but there's a pape called parika and that has trace amounts of DMT in it. So that, that one can be pretty strong. That's a crazy thought. Just like, oh, it just it's just a little bit of DMT. Just a smidgen, you know, not too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends how sensitive you are. I've never had visions <laughs> with it, but I felt like the energy of the, of the medicine is very strong. So each of these plants, each of these medicines have distinct personalities that you can relate to as someone who's like very far from this world. Is that something that you notice that they each talk to you in a different way? Yeah, I would say they have different properties. I think to be able to really recognize those different personalities of the plants, you have to build like a very consistent, deep relationship with them. But with the different blends of hape, you can definitely feel the different properties. Like some of them are like purposefully purgative. So some of them, if you take a high dose, then the idea is that you're going <laughs> to purge, which it's a good thing. If you're in the right place and, you know, it's the right moment, then that can be really good for the body. And then some of them are really, really good, like they have inflammatory properties as well. So some of them have like a lot of positive physical benefits like antibacterial, and then some of them will be very powerful in terms of like getting you into a meditative state and really helping you calm the mind and calm all of that mental chatter. That's really cool. That's fascinating. Where do you get your hape? What's in the hape that you tend to use? I get it from different places. There are so many people that sell it around <laughs> yeah, me. I see it a lot on the, on the markets around here too, but I've, I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of people who I trust and I know where they source it from and they'll mm -hmm. have suppliers who usually send it from Brazil. So my friend, Ivailo, he sells it and he gets it from someone who works with the tribes in Brazil and they send him like these huge bags and he like portions it out. So <laughs> yeah, people that I trust, you know, and it's always good to ask about the source of it. If you're going to go and buy it from the market, you know, maybe it'll be good, but still maybe just like ask a few questions about like, where did you get it from? You know, mm, what's, what's in, in it? it? What yeah. kind of questions would you ask to make sure it's like ethically sourced as a to like extracting i would ask like which tribe does it come from how did they get it from the tribe what are the ingredients of the medicine mm -hmm. yeah i guess if they don't know then it's probably just bought on the open market or tossed hands a couple of yeah. times the main thing is just knowing which community which tribe they came from yeah let's go back to mambe and ambil a little bit because actually when you brought it up to me that was the first time i've ever heard of it could you give like just a quick kind of 101 rundown exactly what it is what's involved Sure. So mambe and ambil are two medicines that traditionally they're always taken together. Mambe is made out of coca leaf, which represents the divine feminine. Ambil is made out of tobacco, which represents the divine masculine. So it's said that when these medicines are used together, they create a divine union mm. in the same way that they balance each other out. They also really complement each other because mambe and coca is a medicine of the word. So it sweetens the word. It helps us communicate better. And ambil is a medicine that calms the mind and sweetens the thoughts. So when we combine these two medicines together we're able to express ourselves authentically from the heart they traditionally come from the Muruymuina community of the amazon 
also known as the Witoto. I don't know if you guys heard about the case recently of the Amazonian children that got lost in the rainforest for 40 days. They did, yeah. So they were from that tribe. They were from the Witoto tribe. So if you watch like the TV interviews of like the dad talking to the camera, his mouth is like full of mambe because <laughs> they use that medicine a lot and they're the guardians of that medicine. Traditionally, like in indigenous communities, they're used in mambeos, which is basically like gatherings of the community where knowledge is passed down from one generation to the next because a lot of these traditions are oral traditions. So a lot of the knowledge and wisdom about the cosmology the philosophy and all of the different plants and the medicines and the way of life of those communities is passed down orally from the elders to the younger generations and it's in these spaces that that happens a lot so there's a Witoto author called Fernando Cho who I have interviewed a few times and he explains how he grew up in Mambeos just always super excited to hear the stories of the elders um, because it was kind of like story time after like a long day you know working doing things in the jungle doing physical activity the community would then gather in the evening or during the night to take mambe ambil, which mambe is powdered. But the idea is that you put it in your cheek and just keep it there until it dissolves. And then ambil is a paste which you can rub on your gums or on your tongue. Using these medicines allowed them not only to communicate and share all of these stories and all of this wisdom, but also to listen really attentively and absorb all of that information as well. So something that he expressed that's really important is they're not only medicines for talking, but also for listening. So it's really important when you're in the mambe or when you're in that circle to be really attentively listening to everything that's going on and being ready to share as well because the idea is that everybody shares in a mambeo. So that's how it's used traditionally in those communities but now it's spread outside of the jungle and they're, they're medicines that are used a lot all over Colombia in different medicine circles so oftentimes if you go to a yahe retreat in Colombia there'll be a mambeo, there'll be a space kind of like an integration circle using these tools to help you speak from the heart and to help you speak authentically and openly. That's beautiful. That reminds me of a lot of like a nakma with like kava or uh, kind of the traditional coffee houses. You know, it's like a very conversational, like social sort of medicine in a way. Is that right? Yeah, it feels like how people use alcohol plus the listening part. Like people drink a lot of alcohol to talk openly and authentically, but the listening part usually kind of falls to the way. Not so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in practical terms, they're really useful as well because coca leaf calms hunger. Mm. So you can stay all night without, if you're in a mambeo, like, you know, you can't just go and get a snack and then come back. <laughs> like the idea is that you stay there and you're part of the circle the whole time. So it's really useful because it calms hunger. And then obviously there's like a alertness that it gives you as well. So it helps you stay awake because a lot of these mambeos will go like into the early hours of the morning. So by continuing to mambear, people are able to stay awake and stay alert and concentrate. Something really interesting that you said before was about this idea of the divine feminine and the divine masculine within these medicines. The like Western idea of the divine feminine and divine masculine. How does that differ and how is it kind of the same within these indigenous circles? Um, Big question, I know. What do you mean by the Western idea? I think there's this very Western idea of the very rigid binary of the divine feminine and divine masculine and the two can never overlap and like mm -hmm. they're not supposed to be combined necessarily do you find that within like the indigenous communities that you work with especially with this medicine that binary almost is a little bit lesser within the idea of the medicine or how does that idea transfer over yeah i mean i wouldn't say i have like an in-depth understanding mm -hmm. of this masculine feminine polarity as it's seen from indigenous communities but what i can see in the way that medicines are combined is that it's not something that's kept separate it's complementary it's interesting to think about and i don't know if this is necessarily from what the indigenous communities would agree with but i feel like everyone can get in touch with the masculine or the feminine side there's definitely overlap and it can be a very fluid thing but definitely they would place a lot of 
emphasis on the feminine plants carrying like a feminine energy and then like the masculine plants carrying like a masculine energy. Like they say that Yahe has more of a masculine energy than ayahuasca because, don't quote me on this, but this is what I've heard, the <laughs> chakra leaf is actually masculine. Mm. The chakruna leaf is feminine. So Yahe, they wouldn't hear call it mother or grandmother. Actually, like sometimes they call it el abuelo, the grandfather. Mm. So it doesn't have that same feminine sort of categorization that ayahuasca does in other communities. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I've only ever done ayahuasca in Peru and it, there at least it was very much seen as like mother ayahuasca, which was very interesting. And even like my visions of her was very feminine, I would say. Like she was like caring for me, you know? Mm. I'm really interested to try like a, a yahe ceremony and see how that kind of differs as well, a bit more masculine. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had ceremonies where I felt there's a, a feminine plant for mm -hmm. sure, but yeah, I've never actually done it in Peru. I've never taken ayahuasca. I've only ever taken yahe. But yeah, mm -hmm. obviously, like that's what a lot of people experience with ayahuasca in Peru. So that's definitely in my plans. Probably next year to go to Peru and try the medicine. I'd love to to do a ceremony with the Shipibo. Yeah, yeah, that was with the Shipibo that I tried it as well. Very beautiful. And they're all uh, with the Shipibo. At least they're all women shaman in the the group that I was with, which is interesting too. That's amazing because there are very very few female taitas in Colombia. So that's something else that like is a huge pull for me to go to Peru is to be able to drink with a woman shaman is there a difference in definitions between like a taita and a shaman or is that just the sort of colloquial term here in colombia yeah it's a traditional name taita it actually means father mm -hmm. and it's a name kind of like if someone calls themselves a shaman like you know that they're not really legit like if someone calls <laughs> themselves a taita, that's a red flag mm. it's a name that the community give to somebody who has studied long enough with the medicine to be able to serve it and to be able to support the healing of of the community and you know, people that go to his ceremonies so it's just the name for someone who occupies that role in Colombia. What would like the female version be called? Maima. Maima? Mm. Taita and Maima. Mm -hmm. I love that. That feels so warm in my heart. That's so nice. <laughs> yeah. That actually kind of brings up another thing I want to talk about too, the idea of these fake shamans or pseudo shamans. Like someone that's say in USA or Canada or Europe and they want to come to Colombia or Peru or something and take ayahuasca, like how can they tell which centers or shamans are legit? Do you have any insight on what people can look for to kind of help vet, especially like from a distance before they get there? Yeah, absolutely. And this is super important. Like it's difficult to overstate how important it is that people do their due diligence when choosing a retreat center or a shaman to go and, and drink medicine with. Obviously, because when we take these medicines, we're in an extremely vulnerable state. And also if the medicine is given by somebody who hasn't passed through the years and years and years that are required to be able to serve and hold ceremony, whether their intentions are good or not, it's actually very dangerous for participants. Mm, totally. Could you speak to just why it's dangerous for people who may not know? Yeah, so it's kind of like if you were going to get an operation, would you go to a surgeon who's graduated from medical school and has all of the degrees hanging on the wall like in their office? Or would you go to like someone, <laughs> you know, from the garage on the corner? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you you want to go to somebody who has spent the years studying required to be able to hold the space and what I've heard from different taitas when I've spoken to them about this issue is when we drink ayahuasca, when we drink yahe, an energetic portal is opened and a lot of different energies and a lot of different spirits can enter the ceremony space when that portal is opened. And if the person leading the ceremony doesn't have the skill and the experience to be able to hold the space energetically, those energies and those spirits can do damage to the people that are sitting mm -hmm. in the ceremony. So it can be like spiritually dangerous. 
And I've heard a few different doctors say that a lot of people will leave psychologically feeling a lot worse, spiritually feeling a lot worse and a lot more unstable if they go to a ceremony like that. And then those doctors that I've spoken to, they'll receive people who have gone to these charlatans, basically. And it'll be their job to try and help them heal and become stable again after such an experience. So Totally. In a lot of ways, the ayahuasca or the medicine itself is not necessarily the thing doing the treatment. It's the person that's behind it. Just as like the scalpel isn't the one that's performing the surgery. It's just the tool used in the surgery and is obviously critical for the surgery to be successful. Yeah. Kind of similar with ayahuasca. Yeah. I mean, I would say the taitas are kind of like a channel for the medicine, but for the medicine to be able to flow and help the people who are in, in, in the ceremony, they need to be very, very clean vessels mm-hmm. and they need to be living in complete integrity. If you have a Taita who's living their life in a way that is not in integrity with the path of the medicine, and that's going to be felt in the participants of the ceremony as well. Yeah, that was something really interesting that I noticed in your interview that you did. It was just deeply fascinating, this idea of living a right life to be able to give the medicine. But also the fact that like this starts so young. The people who become the practitioners of this start as teenagers, or at least the person you spoke to. Would you be able to speak to, to that a little bit? Yeah, and often it's not even that they'll first drink the medicine when they're a teenager. Like oftentimes they're actually drinking the medicine from the age of like five or six years old. But it'll be like maybe at a certain point later in their teenage years where they decide that that's their path and they want to dedicate their entire life. So especially if they come from an indigenous community where the medicine is practiced, it'll be very, very common for the whole community to be just drinking kind of like habitually as a way to support people's health, support people's well-being, especially in the community of the Taita who I interviewed, which is the Inga community. Yahe is like a pillar of health in that community and it, it's a tool used for many different things but then once somebody makes that decision that they're going to dedicate their life to the medicine then they have to basically drink all the time <laughs> multiple times a week for years basically devote their whole life to the process exactly. drinking changing the way that they act and conduct themselves special dietas like all this stuff right exactly yeah and they have to be very strict about what they're eating what they're consuming as well as like sexual activity and things like that so a lot of these titles they're married they have families but a lot of time they'll have to be sleeping in separate beds from their their wives and partners and things like that because their energy has to stay pure and sexual energy and the medicine they don't mix so yeah like taita henry said it's all about discipline the medicine Mm -hmm. requires a lot of discipline and something that he really emphasizes is these aren't rules that someone just made up and then decided this is what everybody has to do this is information that the medicine has been given them over generations and generations. For them, it's very, very important to stick to these rules. And it's fascinating you mentioned that because celibacy is such a thing across so many mystic traditions. And the fact that like that through line exists in that relationship is very interesting. I wanted to kind of go back to the age aspect of it because... I think to maybe an outsider hearing like, oh, we're giving ayahuasca to children would be like a red flag, like, oh, we got to stop this. But because it's such an integral part of the culture, what does it look like as a child is taking this medicine as they grow into it? Like the idea of kids in America can't drink alcohol and that's why they binge when they turn 21. What is that? relationship look like in the indigenous communities that you've worked with? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I was the same when I first found out that Taitas are giving their children the medicine. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, you know, thinking like the experiences that we have with the medicine, which can be so difficult, thinking about a child going through like the reaction is like visceral almost when you first hear about it. But what they actually say is that it's a lot easier for children to drink ayahuasca than adults because they don't have all of the built up disorder. They'll say like the minds are a lot more ordered and a lot more free of the 
the burdens that we've carried um, picked up along the way as we've gone through our adult lives. So for children, they say it's actually like just kind of like a fun experience a lot of the time. And <laughs> maybe they purge, maybe they don't. But generally, the older they get, the more difficult it will become, the more challenging it will become. In the retreat that I was at, when I was in the jungle in February, the Taita's niece was there with us and she was drinking medicine with us for a couple of the ceremonies and she's 11. And she was purging in the ceremony, but her dad is also a Taita. So it's just a way of life for her. It's just how That's she's so grown cool. up. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is the time it takes in your interview with Taita Henry, I think you said eight years for him, but it can be 15 or sometimes 20. Mm -hmm. What happens during those eight years before you're allowed to call yourself a Taita and distribute the medicine? What's the training like for a shaman? Generally, what I've heard from different Taitas and people who have gone through this process is it's really not, you know, complete this many years and then you graduate. It's different for everybody, so it really depends on the skill that they're able to build and the relationship that they're able to build with the medicine mm -hmm. through that process. So like Taita Henry said, somebody could be studying and drinking for 20 years, but they could still not be ready to lead ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So generally, it's recommended that someone study under an elder. That elder will determine when is the right moment for them to start having more responsibility and things like that. It's much less of like a tangible checklist of, oh, you've done all these things. It's just more vibe-based. Exactly, yeah. And it's not like they have books or materials for people to study from. It's really just watching what your teacher is doing, drinking a lot of medicine with them, and just learning from being in ceremony with them and watching how they conduct things and how they do things. And obviously just like learning a lot from the medicine itself, being able to build a relationship with the medicine that allows them to receive the insights that they need to be able to hold ceremonies well. The title that we drink with most in Santa Elena where I live, he says that the medicine taught him everything. He does energetic cleansings, they're called like limpiezas, during the ceremonies. And he says, if anybody tries to teach you how to do one of these cleansings, they're lying to you. <laughs> no, no, no other person can teach you. The medicine teaches you the ikaros. The medicine teaches you how to do the cleansings and how to use these different tools that they have in ceremony. What is the right moment for a certain thing? And what is the right moment for another thing? And all of those decisions that are made in the ceremony, even when it comes to like what song is played, what is the best song for a certain moment versus another moment, it's all coming from the medicine there's no like protocol for stuff like that like if this then that sort of thing it's a more intuitive direct experience only right yeah i would say so yeah let's get back to what we were talking about before too with vetting the retreat centers yeah of... sorry we got we tangent in my mind that we were going to come back to that so let's say somebody's not in the country and they're looking for a retreat center or a shaman to drink medicine with from abroad i would say there are a number of questions and a number of things that you want to tick off when you're vetting a retreat center asking what where did the ceremony facilitators or the ceremony leaders study? Which community did they study with? Like which tradition? Who gave them permission to serve the medicine? Which elder gave them permission? Right. Like if you were to somehow contact this community or, or this elder, they would be able to confirm that person has their permission to serve the medicine because it's happened here in Colombia where someone said like, oh, I have this Taita's permission, but then the Taita has kind of had to come out and say, no, this person doesn't have my permission. So that's something that Taita Henry recognizes, like contacting the indigenous authority itself to say like, hey, this person is saying that you've given them permission to serve medicine. Is that the case? Obviously, that's not going to be possible for like a random person who's just vetting a retreat center, but it's just something to keep in mind that they should have that very clear. How long did they study? There should almost be some kind of like register for some stuff like that. You know, like I don't know how that would even be possible, but 
it's interesting because that's something that Taita Henry is supporting and, you know, we're starting to hear rumors of here in Colombia that they are going to start creating some sort of certificate, some sort of like regulating body for Taitas because the situation mm -hmm. has just gotten out of control in terms of who's just deciding that they can serve medicine. It's only going to get worse too. It's not going to get better. Exactly. Yeah. And then obviously asking how long they studied for, how long have they been leading ceremonies, how long have they been serving the medicine. And you know you're good if they're like, oh, I did it six months ago and now I'm giving it to other people then obviously it's perfect and everything's fine yeah, exactly yeah you want somebody who's studied for multiple multiple years like Taita Henry said at least seven or eight years to be able to serve you also would want to like ask about the experience of the facilitators because generally like with a lot of these retreat centers the shaman or the curandero or the taita will lead the ceremonies but then there's obviously a whole other team of people often westerners facilitating all of the processes around the ceremonies and supporting in the ceremonies as well so you want to make sure that it's not just like somebody again who drank ayahuasca two months ago who's now decided like oh i'm going to set up a retreat center and then i'm going to get this this shaman in to lead the ceremonies but the people who are actually running it have no clue mm. so making sure that they have the proper skills and experience to be able to hold space for people who are going to go to the retreat you know they'll often be like integration circles and things like that and you want to make sure that these people have the necessary experience to be able to make sure that people are properly safe in that environment. They should have an intake process, definitely. If you say like, hey, I want to come to this retreat and they say like, okay, sounds great. You're in. Like, that's flag. <laughs> Pay here, you know? yeah. Here's the Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like just make the payment and it's confirmed. No, there should be like a proper intake process where you're asked about medical history, any medications you're taking, obviously, and any mental health conditions that you might have and just like generally like what's your intention you know mm -hmm. if somebody like allows you to sign up without asking what your intention is i would question that something else you would also want to look into especially if it's a retreat center that's run and owned by westerners that employs indigenous healers what is that relationship that they have with the indigenous healers because there's a lot of exploitation going on totally. and a lot of indigenous people that are obviously like the lifeblood of these retreats like without them it wouldn't exist and they're putting in all this work sharing their ancestral knowledge and their lineage with people from outside of their community which is like an unbelievably huge blessing for us that get to take part in it but if that is not a ethical reciprocal relationship between the retreat owners and the indigenous healers they should be open about what sort of remuneration the healers get and what that relationship is like with the community as well like how are they making sure that they're in a reciprocal relationship with the indigenous tradition and the lands also that the medicine comes from totally especially when it's a for-profit sort of business right like the sort of traditional shaman in a community was not a for-profit venture it's to serve the health of your general community and people would sort of accept whatever form of payment people could give but now we have these modern retreat centers where there's obviously a fee and there's a price and it's in dollars <laughs> so you know it's a yeah like that's hard to navigate that it is a very different energetic exchange when you're giving someone a gift of medicine as opposed to when you're like buying medicine yeah and the thing is like these retreat centers cost a lot of money to run so oftentimes people will look at their price for a retreat and they'll be like oh my goodness that's so expensive they must be making like so much money but like in reality especially if they want to pay people fairly which they should do the reality is we live in a capitalist society and people need to be remunerated for their work so a lot of retreat centers will have like scholarships and things like that, which is good. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just making sure that everybody's treated and paid fairly is important. Do you have a gauge of like what that price range would be? Obviously, you have to do more research in depth, but like, oh, they're probably paying people fairly. Like, what is that price point if you have a sense? If you don't, that's okay. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
the thing is in Peru, and especially like in Costa Rica as well, it's a lot more expensive than oh, yeah. some of the retreats here. Mm. And the thing that I think is a good thing about a lot of the retreats that I've been to is they'll have a separate price for Colombians and foreigners. Mm. So they'll charge foreigners who obviously like earn dollars or euros or whatever in dollars, but then Colombians will have a rate that's more appropriate for the Colombian currency. Good. That makes a lot of sense and is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask you too about like red flags, I see a lot of these retreat centers where it's like five nights for ayahuasca sessions or something. I don't agree with that model. You know, like a lot, a lot of these companies are trying to advertise like we're giving more value by having more ceremonies, which I don't think is necessarily a, a good way to market yourself or to, or to be like more medicine doesn't necessarily mean better healing. But like, what's a good kind of ratio for like, you know, if you go for a five or a seven night retreat, like how many times should you expect to drink from an ethical retreat center? Yeah. And, you know, it's such an interesting question that I've thought about a lot because I've been to retreats where it's been four ceremonies in five like days yeah and i don't think there's necessarily like a right way or a wrong way it really depends on what the person feels ready for like mm -hmm. a lot of people are not going to feel ready for for ceremonies in five days <laughs> especially if it's their first time but you know what i've been to retreats where that's been the case and there have been people who've been there for the first time and they've never drunk medicine before and they've had like an absolutely incredible experience and they've taken so much from it so i don't think it's my place to say like this is the right amount right. but then at the same time having space between ceremonies for the insights to really settle in and rest as well so that you have energy like going into the next ceremony yeah, because it's exhausting. It really is. You're up all night. It's a very active process. It usually takes me at least a full day to recover from one of those. Not to mention getting my thoughts in order and everything. I can't imagine yeah. drinking two nights in a row even, personally. Yeah, I mean, I've been to a few retreats where we've done Friday night, Saturday day, Saturday night. So it's not even like two or three consecutive nights. It's like three <laughs> ceremonies in two days, basically. And it's really challenging. For me, in the point that I'm at, I feel like that's okay for me to do at this point because I'm really trying to like build mm -hmm. not stamina but like I guess resilience when it comes to drinking medicine and like have that resilience going from one ceremony to the next but yeah for a lot of people that's going to be a lot of medicine so I think like with everything it really just depends on like where is that decision coming from is it coming from oh we want to give people the most bang for their buck and get as many people through the door as possible it's like a marketing thing as opposed to a quality of care thing right yeah if that's where the people who are running the retreat are coming from then obviously that's not good but if they have their reasoning for running it that way and and oftentimes they do it it can be like a little bit like a hero's journey type thing of like oh my goodness how am i going to get through three days of constant ceremony basically and then you get through it and you come out the other side and you know this is the thing it depends like some people feel great other people might feel like it was too much for them in that moment so it just really depends on so many things i would just encourage anyone who's making a decision around what kind of format of ceremony of retreat to go to just like really try and feel into their own intuition and like what is their gut feeling telling them is this going to be the right setup for them or would it be better to have a bit more space but like the reality is especially here people don't have 10 days to take off work and pay three thousand dollars or whatever it is True. to go to the jungle for that long like a lot of people they actually want the most bang for their buck they can only mm -hmm. take one or two days off work and they just want to go for the weekend and if that's what they want then <laughs> it's very difficult to say what's right yeah. and what isn't fair enough Another thing I thought we should talk about is the preparation for these things. Like you said, some people, they only have, say, like three days that they can really go to this thing. 
But the process does kind of start usually a couple of weeks before that, right? What's involved yeah. with planning to take a, a trip to an ayahuasca retreat center? Like, how do people get started? Yeah, absolutely. I think the preparation is so important. And there is, like, a strong focus on it. But I think it's kind of difficult to overstate just how important it is. So with a friend of mine, we run private ceremonies where we'll take a group to a private ceremony with the Taita that we work with here in, in Santa Elena. And, like, when we do that with people, it's not just, like, the ceremony and then done. There's a whole process that goes mm -hmm. around it. And I know like a lot of retreat centers do this as well. Really, when you make that commitment to sign up for the retreat or the ceremony, that's when the ceremony begins. And from that moment, it's really good to start introducing these different practices and changes to help mm. build energetic momentum so that when you go into the ceremony and the retreat, you feel like you've already actually done a lot of work that will allow you to connect more deeply with the medicine and to get everything that you possibly can out of it. There are many different aspects. Obviously, there's like the physical aspect of preparation, cutting certain things out of your diet, trying to eat as clean and as neutral as possible. So things like red meat, dairy, processed foods, sugar, excessive salt, spicy foods, fermented foods, coffee, alcohol, obviously, and any other substances should be avoided before the ceremony. Some people do this three days before, some people do it three weeks before. <laughs> it kind of just depends on what's feasible for the person, but generally, the longer, the better mm -hmm. when it comes to all the preparation. And then there's also the mental, emotional preparation as well which looks a lot like mindful practices meditation is really really important anything that helps you get into your body any embodiment practices breath work yoga mindful movement spending time in nature feeling connected to the earth that's all going to be really beneficial as well because when we're in the ceremony we want to make sure that we're as in the body as possible rather than being in the mind and letting like your thoughts kind of like kind of worrying about work back home <laughs> and unrelated things yeah or just allowing your thoughts to take over and start trying to make sense of the experience and explain the experience whilst you're still in it. Whereas just like being like fully present in the body is going to be super beneficial. And then there's also the intention setting as well, which is really, really important. Making sure that you have your intentions for the ceremony clear and connecting with them on a daily basis in the days leading up to the ceremony as well. Intentions can look very, very different from one person to the next. There isn't really a set formula as to what your intention should look like. But generally, it's better not to have like a list of 15 <laughs> specific questions. Have two or three max intentions that really focus on positive outcomes. How uh, like specific do you think goals or intentions have to be? Or can they be pretty broad? It really depends. Yeah. For me personally... Sometimes I've taken a very specific situation in my life to the medicine and I've mm -hmm. received like a full to-do list, like step by step, like this is what Beautiful. you need to do. It really depends, but it's also important to remember that intentions are really good to have and especially in like the more difficult moments of the ceremony, but be prepared for the medicine to say like, that's not what we need to work on today. <laughs> like, this is actually what you need to work on and be prepared to let go of them if that's what the medicine decides. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. You thought that was your problem. Right. Oh. <laughs> exactly. But usually like what happens is we'll go in with an intention that's the symptom of a deeper problem that we haven't yet recognized. But then mm. the medicine is really, really good at like revealing those blockages and it's like, oh, you thought like you had to act on this, like actually it goes much deeper and this is really kind of what you have to understand, release, process, whatever. And that's where like the preparation comes in. Like if you're doing a lot of journaling, like doing a lot of self-examining beforehand, you can maybe break through that first layer before you get there and be like, oh, this is what I'm actually dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a, something that I forgot to mention, but journaling is also really important, like before and after, immediately after as well. Mm. Yeah. Because a lot of this experience that you have on like ayahuasca is, it's already hard enough to language, right? So it's, you forget <laughs> it very quickly. As suddenly as it comes, it can go away. Writing it down is 
totally an underrated process. After the session, you can review it a few days or a year or two years later and still get new stuff out of it. I, I do yeah. at least, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there are different schools of thought when it comes to like how important it is to remember everything that we receive in ceremony. Mm -hmm. I know some people think, don't worry about remembering it. Don't worry about writing it down because that information is going to be like stored in you in somehow. It's yeah. in like the unconscious. Whereas other people and like what I found beneficial is just really trying to go into the experience with as much of a decluttered mind as possible mm. which is like actually an insight that I received in the last ceremony that we did a few weeks ago which was that like using social media and like consuming media right up until a ceremony even if you deem it as necessary for like whatever reason it's really <laughs> really not good and that can act as a block between you and the medicine when we asked the Taita about it he basically said our minds are like hard drives when we're constantly consuming news and social media and things like that leading up to a ceremony we fill up all of that storage space so that when we go into the ceremony we don't actually have space to receive mm. the information that the medicine is trying to give us so we end up forgetting it so my integration since that ceremony has looked like drastically reducing my social media usage and putting like a lot of systems in place to help me like get into deep work and improve my focus and concentration with my work but then also not using scrolling mindlessly as a break or reward and yeah it's been positive so far so we'll see next time i go into the ceremony if i connect more deeply good for you i commend you on getting less attached to social media i think we all need to do that a little bit totally sort of that like your cup is already full sort of situation how can you have room for more information when you've already just been filling it up it's more a process of emptying before you go into the ceremony exactly yeah yeah I also wanted to ask you about, for people that are interested in becoming a facilitator, what is sort of the pathway or like what is a pathway that people could tangibly follow if they truly are interested in this? I mean, first of all, I would say definitely drink a lot of medicine, gain a lot of experience with the medicine that you're looking to support people around. That's really important. And if you can have like a mentor or a teacher, that's also very invaluable. I've had a couple of very important mentors and I still consider myself to be like very much at the beginning of this process. Mm -hmm. Definitely consume a lot of the medicine that you're wanting to work with, especially if you're going to serve it. The only medicine I serve is happy and I don't have plans to serve any others for now anyway, but like, especially if you're going to serve it, then that's like a really, really important process, depending on obviously the medicine that you want to serve. But in terms of facilitating preparation, integration and supporting in ceremonies, learning from a mentor. How do you find a mentor? Like, are there places you can volunteer or something to kind of work under them? Or how does that work? Yeah, for me, it happened kind of organically. One of my best friends has his own business here where he runs these private ceremonies and occasionally retreats. And I just kind of like organically started supporting him mm -hmm. in that but yeah i think if, if you can get in touch with like different retreat centers that you might want to help out at and explore what options they might have and there, there's mm -hmm. also like a lot of different trainings now as well as more and more people want to become integration coaches or psychedelic guides and all of these different trainings popping up as well so i'm going to start one of those like at the end of this month with kat courtney who's a ayahuasca wachimara very cool right here in colombia uh, yeah. online. It's an, it's an online, it's online training. Yeah, it's like an integration training. Very cool. Was there anything else that you really wanted to talk about when you came on here? Or? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd super love to come on yeah. again and talk about the five million other things that we could touch on. But yeah, I think that was really comprehensive. You guys had really good questions. Thank you. I just want to briefly touch on the Temezcal because you have a post sure. coming out on that by the time this podcast is out. Could you give us kind of a quick rundown on what Temezcal is and how that fits into all of this, to the retreat centers and everything? Yeah. 
So Temascal is a sweat lodge, and it comes from the Machica tradition from Central America, from Mexico, and I think Guatemala as well. For anybody who's not familiar with a sweat lodge, it's basically an ancient ancestral ceremony where there's a dome, either like a wooden structure with blankets over the top, that's usually how we nippy from the Lakota tradition is done, or made out of like clay as well. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that people go inside this dome structure and volcanic stones that have been heated on a fire are brought in from outside and put in a pit in the center of this dome structure and then kind of like the door or the flap is closed and you're in complete darkness and then whoever's leading the ceremony will pour water on the stones which then creates like a lot of vapor in the air you can imagine it gets really really hot inside <laughs> but there are usually songs and prayers sung and said throughout the the ceremony and it, it's seen as like a purification ceremony the temascal is said to represent the womb of mother earth so it's a really really beautiful way to purify the body cleanse the mind and the spirit as well get back in touch with the the earth with that whim energy and also send a prayer as well because especially in native american traditions like from the north and from central america prayer is a huge tenet of all of those ceremonies so just like mantra is in the east right same sort of niche i guess that it fills yeah and there are moments where it can get very tough so like with any ceremony with sacred medicine you know it requires a lot of concentration at times to not let the mind run away with you and really just kind of stay present and surrender to the experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very, very beautiful. And we attend Temascal here with an elder called Abuela Gloria. And she has studied for many years with the Machica tradition in Mexico and she carries that tradition and she runs Temascal here as well as the Vision Quest and Moon Dance as well. Fascinating. I would love to try one one of these days. Yeah, well, whenever you come to Medellin, Justin, we can go and mm -hmm. do a Temascal or an Inipi as well. There's many Perfect. people running them close to here. Will do. Definitely will do. My final like round out question that I had. These groups, these ceremonies, they don't exist within isolation within a community. Like there is the communities that exist outside of them that they're feeding into the economy of a little bit. What do you have pieces of advice for people who are doing this psychedelic tourism coming here to take these ceremonies? Are there organizations that you know of that give back to the community that people can donate to? Are there are there ways that people can not just fly in, go to the retreat, then fly out? What would you say would be a good way to give back to the larger community in that way? That's a great question. I think there are a lot of different ways that we can do that. There's obviously financial donations and things like that, but as well as that, if you feel like you want to donate to a certain organization or a foundation, that's like supporting the rights of indigenous people or like land protection for indigenous people that's one way you know really thinking about like the environmental protection that's required to keep these medicine traditions alive because they obviously need the land to be able to grow them and obviously for the communities to be able to live in and be connected to as well so kind of in addition to the obvious importance of protecting the rainforest and stopping deforestation and environmental pollution you know you can't really separate them from the indigenous communities that have inhabited them forever basically I would also say some thing that I think is really really important is just really try and learn about the tradition like I've been at retreats where people haven't even realized Yahe is a tradition in Colombia they thought like oh is the shaman coming from Peru and I'm like how don't you know that like this is a tradition here as well they won't make an effort to learn about like which tribe does the shaman come from because you know you can go to a retreat in the Amazon or you can go to like a retreat close to Bogota or you can go to a retreat close to Medellin or on the coast there are a lot of fighters that leave their communities in the Amazon to serve medicine in other cities in Colombia or abroad or in Costa Rica places like that and so many of these participants like you said they just sort of like fly in for the retreat take the medicine and leave 
they don't even know like what is the name of the tribe that cooked this medicine mm -hmm. so yeah. like really just trying to learn a little bit more about the tradition and if you don't speak spanish or portuguese that's okay just like ask somebody to translate for you try and find someone during the retreat who can translate for you and just like if the taita or the shaman is available for that like just ask some questions to understand where does it come from try and do some research you know like obviously the amount of content and stuff available about these traditions is growing a lot online especially in english so like just maybe make an effort read a few books and just learn about where it comes from important part of the preparation stage isn't it yeah like how can you engage in a reciprocal respectful responsible relationship with these plants and with these communities and understand that it's not a transactional thing it's not a drug that you're going to take that's going to heal you and then you don't have to think about it again just <laughs> understand the honor and blessing it is to be able to take part in these traditions as foreigners which is huge totally. great advice yeah i think that was great that was perfect <laughs> okay great uh i think we can hit stop recording we good uh, not yet. Cool. Uh, where, uh, where can people find more? Yeah, of your plug work, yourself. Max? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I have a website, magstanev, M A G S T A N E V dot com. I'm also on Twitter at magstanev and LinkedIn, which I don't really use. But yeah, those are the main places. Are there any retreat centers here that you'd like to kind of give a quick shout out to that people can look into? Oh, yeah, definitely Colibri Garden, which is the organization that I work with that's founded by my friend Ivailo. We have Yahe ceremonies and also wachuma ceremonies and Ivailo also has a medicine music guitar course coming out Ooh, very soon very maybe cool. already out by the time this podcast is released so if anybody wants to learn medicine music check that out definitely we'll link that below if it's out by the time this podcast is released Absolutely. awesome yeah that would be great and other retreat centers that i endorse definitely la ceiba which is close to medellin and ambi comunidad as well both of those are really really good places to drink medicine beautiful thank you so much for that all right now we're good oh thank you so much that thank was great Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tripsitter podcast. Be sure to check out Mags' website and social media so you can follow along on her journey. Tripsitter is supported by our fans. If you like the work we do and want to help support us doing it, become a premium subscriber on our Substack today to help support us while receiving exclusive content. This podcast was co-hosted by Justin Cook and Rowan Zioli. It was edited by James Curtis with help from Ronito Villamore. Thanks, Ronito. As always, we want to end with a reminder. There's no such thing as a bad drug. They're all just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist in our world. It's our relationship with them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Until next time, have a safe trip.